1: Hey, dear listeners, welcome to episode number three of the Tupperware Party, Film Geek Radio's weekly podcast devoted to discussion and analysis of the HBO television series, The Leftovers. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson, and I'm here with regular co-host, Charlie Nash. How are you doing, Charlie?
0: I'm okay, Andrew. Someone just beat the crap out of me and shoved a piece of paper in my mouth, and I have no idea why.
1: Oh, that really sucks, Charlie. Have you eaten any good leftovers lately?
0: Just that paper.
1: Okay, so that's what you brought to our Tupperware party this week, is just that paper?
0: Andrew, I was just beaten up.
1: I brought some leftover pigeon. It's pretty tasty.
0: Oh, uh, I haven't tried pigeon, but I've, I've heard it's kind of like fish and that, you know, you need to get just the right pigeon, make sure they're uh, prepared well. <laughs> this tastes just like chicken.
1: <laughs> As always, you can email the Tupperware Party at leftovers at filmgeekvideo.com and access all of our episodes by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. If you like the show, please leave us a review. That really helps us out a lot. And if you leave us a good review, we'll make you an honorary member of the team. We also have a voicemail line at 336-793-2509. So you can call and leave us some feedback there. Again, that's 336-793-2509. Today, as always, we're going to be talking about a new episode of the HBO series, The Leftovers. But before we get to that, we have a new honorary member to induct into the team. To become an honorary member, all you have to do is leave us a positive review on iTunes. Today's review comes from Kay Elena, who writes, It's always a pleasure to hear Charlie and Andrew. I also recommend their True Detective podcast, very insightful comments and discussion on a very complex show. Well, thanks, Kay Elena.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I'm utterly flattered. It's very sweet of you. It it feels kind of weird to know
1: that now we have fans that are following us from podcast to podcast. I feel kind of stalked.
0: (laughs) Oh, Andrew. (laughs) Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside.
1: Well, thank you for all your support, Kay Elena. Uh, We're pleased to bring you on as our honorary casino bouncer. You never know when you might need one of those.
0: Uh, Yeah, you can catch all the pigeons that Andrew's apparently been eating. Yes, yes, that's actually how I got them. The bouncer
1: (laughs) caught the pigeons for me, and I was like, I'll take those. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing episode three of season one of The Leftovers. The episode is titled Two Boats and a Helicopter. It was written by Damon Lindelof and Jacqueline Hoyt and directed by Keith Gordon. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this episode?
0: This is the official synopsis from HBOGo.com. In the face of dwindling church attendance and threats on his life, the Reverend Matt uh, Jameson continues to preach his gospel, that many who disappeared in the departure were sinners and not saints. Matt's campaign is detoured when he learns he may lose the church to foreclosure, forcing him to launch a desperate, last-minute plan to come up with the cash to keep it.
1: Here's a clip.
2: Uh, I need to borrow $135,000. What? They're gonna sell the church. I'm sorry. I know it's a lot of money, but it'd just be alone. Things are changing. People are ready to come back. I just performed a baptism this morning coming to you. But this is our family church.
1: All right, Charlie, you and I kind of disagreed a little bit about last week's episode. I'm curious to know what you thought of episode 3 of The Leftovers because this is a very different episode from what we've gotten in the past. This is an episode focused on a single character. Mm-hmm. So, what did you think of Two Boats and a Helicopter?
0: Well, I liked the pilot a lot. And then we disagreed on last week's. I liked it more Muted, although I thought it was a bit of a step down. I actually think that I loved this episode, Andrew. I really, really dug this episode. And as you said, it is very different. It is basically a character study of this reverend, played by Christopher Eccleston, who gives a great performance. And I honestly wish, now that we've seen this episode, that every episode up until now was structured in this similar way where it focuses on one character and while other supporting characters or other characters intersect into their plot lines, it gives us a much deeper sense as to who these people are and how they're affected by the departure I found this episode to be a really moving piece of television as a character study uh, in terms of its drama. I I found it to be much more uh, complex. I feel like it was much more accessible than the first two episodes where we just kind of watched it with a sense of uh, befuddlement, even though it was gripping, we had no idea what to be able to grasp onto. And from episode one to two, it seemed like even the characters were were changing already, And uh, certain plot elements were coming out of nowhere. And here, everything seemed grounded. Everything seemed fully realized. It was a very quiet episode. And yet, it gave us a glimpse of this character that is completely fully realized. And uh, he had multiple arcs throughout this episode. And I gasped during multiple times because I was amazed by how many surprises it had. And how it was... So much more complex than, I mean, the show is already complex, but it was complex in a way that we could dramatically uh, be invested in it, as opposed to just being pulled out of the show and thinking, wait, what's going on here? I think this is by far the best episode of the series so far. I hope that they continue down this route of having single character episodes. I doubt that's going to happen. But even if the rest of this season turns out to be kind of a mess, I feel like this episode stands alone as a really good hour of television.
1: I'm going to agree with you, Charlie. I feel like I've gotten, I I have whiplash.
0: Yeah. This episode because
1: (laughs) I hated last week's episode. It's just not a good episode of television. To go from that to this, I was just, just was not expecting it at all. And I agree with you, the decision to focus on only one character was the right decision to make. And I'm, I'm intrigued by whether or not they're going to continue that. And it's, it's always interesting to see how shows ultimately decide to structure their character development, and that's assuming they decide to, to have a definitive structure for character development. Um, like if you, if you think back to, uh, to Lost, Damon Lindelof's previous show, that was a show in which every single episode, yeah, it focused on multiple characters in the present, but every episode would have flashbacks about a single character in the past. And that proved really effective. And uh, we've brought up the the French show, The Returned, a couple times on the podcast. Uh, that is a show that does exactly what you wish this show would start to do, Charlie. It is, it's a show that focuses only on one character, each episode and uh it it is very very effective so it'll be interesting to see if that's what the leftovers decides to do as well i fully agree with you charlie this was a fantastic episode of television i felt like finally it felt like the show with at least this character it had a direction it had arcs it all made since it wasn't hinging on mysteries and and unknowns, it was hinging on character, and 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 not just character, but specifically moral choices mm-hmm. and and decisions that this guy uh, Matt Jameson has to make. Really important decisions that will affect not only his life but arguably his entire worldview and, and spirituality to a certain extent. And that I found much more compelling than, oh, how did these people disappear? Oh, is the chief going crazy? You know, this to me felt felt much more uh, exciting and, and suspenseful from a character perspective.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a lot less going on and there's no you know like last episode had the raid and there was the big mob scene in the pilot where the when the cult showed up and there's nothing violent or you know fast paced about this episode but the quiet moments are so well done that when certain dramatic choices that this character uh goes through happen, they feel more thrilling than a raid that just launches episode two that we have no idea what's going on uh, with. We have no idea who those characters are here. We get a fully fleshed out realization as to who this reverend is. Something happens in the beginning of this episode where he gets beaten up and he gets a piece of paper shoved in his mouth. And we don't know what is happening at first, but they immediately follow that up with, Oh, you're a, you know, a reverend who." is trying to make sense of the departure but in and you're trying to come up with a logical and spiritual reason as to why these people went missing but you're also being kind of a jerk and you're being incredibly blunt and you're putting shame to a lot of people who have gone missing and you're hurting families that's a really interesting arc because and then to show all these other sides that he is vulnerable. You know, he needs money for the church and, you know, he's got his wife is, you know, uh paralyzed, completely paralyzed. And they don't ever give it. They don't amp up the melodrama in a way that feels cheap. It all feels authentic. And then the last, 20 to 30 minutes of the episode where he goes to the casino, I was pretty much gasping at every moment the fact that he was gambling more money, the fact that he was getting robbed, and then he got, and then he beat the people back up when he saw the guy getting hit with the rock, and then he gets hit with the rock, and then you think he's going to make it to the church on time to give him the money, and then it's been three days that he's been knocked out. Every single dramatic beat of this episode worked, and it never felt, entirely manipulative it felt very layered and very complex and it earned our sympathy by being straightforward even the stuff with the dream sequences in this episode which we've complained about we complained about that last week i felt like here it was done so well and it added depth to the character it revealed moments from his history that makes sense to why he is acting the way he is acting now and i would love it if the show could just do these types of episodes for a while. And then if you want to get into the ensemble stuff, when we know who everyone is, that would be much more effective. It also, I don't watch Lost, so I know that that, um, I don't have a lot to relate to with that, but it also reminded me of the way Orange is the New Black kind of does this. And while there is some more ensemble stuff going on, with Orange is New Black, even when they focus on one character in an episode, I felt like the flashbacks to uh, those characters, it, where they give you a sense as to who these people are, it felt kind of like that, a little bit like that to me. It, with, you know, this much more bleak, um, apocalyptic tone that Damon Lindelof provides. But yeah, I just think that everything about this episode pretty much worked. I was astonished by how good it was compared, because I, I uh, you know, based on, you know, I liked last week's episode, but I was, you know... Pretty concerned, and I was just blown away.
1: I I disagree with you a little bit with the idea that nothing happened in this episode, Charlie, or, or that there wasn't violence in this episode, or or in some cases extreme violence. There, I think there was actually in in a lot of violence. The difference is, it's it wasn't physical violence. It was often uh, emotional violence. Yes, whether it's uh, Matt having to process the fact that oh no he's going to lose his church that he's devoted so much of his life to. Or the scene in which he's with Nora and we realize she's his sister and then he reveals that her husband was cheating on her. I would argue that's the most violent moment we've seen in the show so far in terms of yeah. just how devastating it was. It really makes you uncertain of how to feel about this guy, and, that, and that's the mark of a of a complex character. When the audience can relate to a person by not only liking them and agreeing with how they do certain things and empathizing with them in, in certain ways, but also being kind of uncertain, like, "Ugh, this character—that's kind of—that's kind of harsh. What he did there, and oh, I'm not sure if this is—if he's really a good guy after all." He, he's the most complex character we've seen on the show, by far. No question. No question at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I like the fact that this character was so gray. And they never try and excuse... It doesn't feel like the writers or the direction is trying to excuse any of the hurtful actions that this character does. It's not like as soon as um we find out about his wife that... that the director's like, see, he's a good guy because it's all it, it's gray throughout. I mean, even the scene where he beats up the guys who are mugging him, the guy who's mugging him, at least I will speak for myself. I was really devastated and thinking, oh, my God, he's going to beat him up. He's going to take the money. It's just going to be like the beginning. And we want him to fight back. But when he fights back, it's almost scary. It It, it is scary in a way because he gets so into it. And, like, even that type of violence, even that self-defensive type of violence with the woman, the girlfriend of the assaulter that he's now beating up, that assaulted him originally, is screaming, no, please stop. They don't even try and glorify that, like, yeah, look at him. You know, he's the underdog. No, it's, it's pretty horrific. I mean, it's not even that brutally violent in terms of the gore, but emotionally, as you said, it's pretty tough to watch. And that scene alone gave me whiplash.
1: Well, they also leave it open-ended as to whether or not the guy is dead. That, too. Because he's slamming his face into the ground, and then when they leave it, you're, the guy's not moving. So you're not sure if he may have actually killed a man. Yeah. And um, and, and, and that's what I'm talking about when I refer to this whole idea of a, of, of a moral violence or a moral evolution that occurs in the span of this single episode where this priest goes from seemingly being meek and... and, and kind, even though he is kind of riling people up with these uh, flyers that he's passing around. He seems like a, like a good guy who's just trying to make sense of what's going on. But then to see that transition from where he, he gets so desperate to save his church that he's willing to resort to violence in order to get the money, I just thought that that was really great, um, really complex. And you're right, the fact that it's not just the standard oh he lost the money and and that's the end of that arc the fact that he changes in order to keep the money and then the plot goes through a few more twists for him to still lose the church i just i you're right it was really great writing
0: yeah and you know and they place the dream sequence right after he gets knocked out which is perfect it's not like a dumb like he goes to bed one night and then he goes to sleep it was it served a purpose to after we've seen him go through all these changes, we get an, a scene that connects how he was involved to the first scene of the episode, in the uh, of the pilot episode, which I thought was great. And that didn't feel manipulative at all. And it explains how his wife is paralyzed and it doesn't do it in a very emotionally manipulative way. It does it in a very surreal, disorienting, very frightening way, which I think, and brief way, which was great. And now it's also set up an antagonistic relationship for this character with the members of Andoud's cult. Although I guess we, should we be calling them a cult anymore because they don't think themso- of themselves as a cult, but I don't know what else to call them at this point.
1: I'd call them an activist group. Activist group. I, that, that's, that's, it's, that's more it's appropriate. They seem more like an activist group.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how this character now, how his relationship with the uh, Andow's, uh activist group and everyone involved in it now we've gotten hints at, to what as to what these people are like in the first two episodes, but now we know entirely what this character's like, and I feel like that heightens the drama for us with that set of characters as well, and also gives off a sense of danger
1: yeah I, I want to get to that ending in a sec, but I also before we talk about that I want to to get back to this dream sequence that happens, and uh of course, spoilers or. <laughs> you should know by now we're going to spoil the show uh so he has this 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 dream sequence except you're not really sure for a long time you know is this a dream is this just a glimpse into his subconscious is this some sort of divine vision that he's having and it seems almost the the way it's presented it's masterfully edited so it almost seems like a mixture of all three Mm-hmm. And and you could interpret it as 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 any of them. You mentioned how there's this scene with his parents where it's him and his adult body, but he's with his parents like he was when he was a child, and the doctors are telling him that the cancer, that the that the leukemia has spread.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now we found out in the opening scene that the you know he tells his congregation that oh, I was the little boy with leukemia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I'm asking you to, to pray for this other little girl. So we know that he got better. But the fact that it's not the uh, the doctor just telling his parents, for the first time, you have leukemia. It's the fact that the doctor is saying he that leukemia is spreading. I was wondering, is that significant in any way? You know, I'm sure that it, people who have seen Lost could take that and and run with it, and come up with all these elaborate theories, like, oh, you see, he actually did get he the, all these people are dead, and he did die from leukemia, or oh, it's a parallel universe that he suddenly ah uh, come into contact with over here, where instead of surviving the leukemia, it spreads, or you know, they, they, it, it it was such a a weird dream sequence, and uh, there, there's just a lot of really great stuff, like how it subtly implies that. He had some sort of sexual feelings for uh, Chief Garvey's wife. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's somewhere in the back of his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and yeah, just a lot of really, really interesting implications there.
0: Him setting him the imagery of his arms catching fire and spreading to the rest of his body was also quite haunting.
1: Well, right. And and we know that his parents died in a fire. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that his hands are on fire makes me wonder, well, did he have anything to do with his parents' death? Or does he somehow, does he blame himself somehow for their death?
0: Yeah. And, you know, could it be metaphorical for, um, you know, the fire that the and the rage that he's spreading in people by calling out, you know, how certain people from the departure had committed illegal acts or were immoral. And that's, that was one of my favorite, you know, I know that's introduced early on into the episode, but that is such a fascinating trait for me because it's completely empathetic because he's trying to make sense of this and how can you not insert in in a time like this, especially if you're religious and you're a reverend, how can you not, if you're, you know, if you're trying to find some sense of meaning, how can you not? try and connect the dots that way. At the same time, it is extremely hurtful and extremely insensitive to do such a thing. And yet I feel like, you know, I understood why people would want to beat the crap out of him. And I totally understood why he would go as far as to try and say, Hey, look, I'm trying to make sense of this. It hurts, but you know, these people were bad. It, I totally believe that that's exactly what a priest or a reverend or anyone, uh, and any member of some religious society would act in a time like this so th- that i found to be fascinating
1: right and and just the whole idea that he's he's got to make sense of what happened he has to somehow reconcile the departure with his religion and so he has to come up with some sort of framework to explain it and and his framework is apparently well they must have uh, deserved to be taken away they must have all done done something bad this isn't a a rapture this is perhaps a damnation to a certain extent and um i thought it was interesting maybe you can clarify this for me charlie so he gets the money Mm -hmm. from a a judge Mm -hmm. that we assume has was taken in the departure or, or perhaps uh but the judge uh left him this money left a note for him yes and we know that the judge was involved in bribes mm-hmm. and took bribes because the reverend has has the flyer about it so i'm i was just kind of curious okay wait 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 so were the reverend and this judge friends and that's why the reverend is giving him the money did the reverend bribe the judge himself or help out in any way why is the judge going to leave him this money and also, isn't it interesting that even after the judge has left them, him this money that ultimately could potentially end up saving his church, he still went out and put up the flyers about the, uh, about the judge and said, yeah, he, he took bribes. He wasn't a good guy. You mm-hmm. know? So the, the guy whose reputation he's tarnished, th- that money ends up helping him out. Absolutely. The other, and the other question is, is it actually money from those bribes? Is it dirty money? in a sense, that he's using to, to hopefully pay off the money for his church. You know, is he, by taking that money, is that also symbolic of how he's getting his hands dirty and, and becoming more morally corrupt?
0: Yeah, I don't think there are answers to all of those questions in the episode, which I think makes it interesting, too, um, and adds to the layers of, mor- uh, the complex layers of morality that are at play here. And I could be wrong, maybe I missed it, but I don't think we know if they were friends, or if I, I think that's assumed, because how could he know exactly where that money was? But I agree with you, that is really interesting, because I feel like he's trying to be a, a spiritual leader um, and a moral leader, and so he feels the necessity to throw this guy under the bus, maybe... And also, I feel like it could be a way for him to cover his tracks if people ask, where did that money come from? Well, it couldn't have been the Reverend because he called this guy out. Why would he do that? Would you say I'm kind of on track here, or do you think I'm making estimations that are not that can't be clarified?
1: I think, you're, I think you could be onto something there. I mean, like you said, we, we don't have any definitive answers at this point. But again, this episode did such a good job of developing the character that I want to know more. I want to know more about his backstory. I want these details to be filled in. It's possible uh, Damon Lindelof will do something similar to what he did in Lost, where he'll gradually unfold more and more details about these characters every every season, where like, maybe every ten episodes or so we'll get another episode revealing more about uh, the Reverend's backstory, and, 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 and I think that that could work in this case. But um, getting back to to this whole idea of symbolism and and illusion and religion. Do you have any particular feelings on what you think the show seems to be saying about religion and about faith, and, and his faith in particular?
0: Well, what I love about this character is that he's using faith to try and come up with a solution, and it doesn't exactly... Say anything necessarily, it's not swaying one way or the other on its viewpoints on religion, it's just kind of examining how religion affects this guy's uh, method to put the pieces of this puzzle together that can never be fully explained, and how religion can drive someone to think this certain way. I don't think it's offensive at all in terms of how it analyzes how religion affects the psyche of this character. I find it to be a fascinating study of how. Because I feel like this is exactly how some people would react. I feel like a lot of, not just uh, not just members of r- religious authorities, I feel like a lot of people who are religious might act this way and might say, well, they were sinners. Why, what do you think? I mean, I think that it's not exactly saying anything about religion in particular like i guess what
1: i'm asking is do you feel like the show is saying that his faith and his religion is a good thing that's helping him or is the show kind of siding with nora as in well hey this whole religion thing it's leading you down a road you don't need to go and it you need to you need to kind of let it go
0: Well, I think it provides comfort for him, but I also think that he's seeking so much solace in the idea of it that it's ultimately misguiding him. And his need for religion and his need for this comfort that religion gives him drives him to do some terrible things in order to save the church. I think that he's made religion such a primary source of faith and inspiration and guidance to the point that it is misguiding him. But I don't think that's anything against religion. I think that's just saying how this character is affected by it, if that makes any sense. Which I also think is something that can be relatable to a lot of people today. I don't think that's anything against religion. I just think it's all about how much you let religion affect your psyche.
1: Well, I agree with you, and I think it's ambiguous in a a really interesting and, and good way. For most of the first half of the episode, I was thinking, man, it's it's good that this guy's around. Yeah, he's upsetting a lot of people with his flyers, but ultimately, he's he's providing people uh, with comfort uh, and, and trying to offer them answers. There's a really great scene where uh, a guy brings his baby to be baptized. And they're just really mm-hmm. nice moments that, that show how, regardless of whether or not you're religious, that that, that religion does serve a role in... Providing people with comfort, providing people with tradition, providing people with some sort of structure to, to, to latch onto in times of need. And then in the second half of the episode, it does seem to kind of take the stance, well, that's, that's well and good, but he's taking it a bit too far. And, and it is, he is letting the idea of faith and the idea that God will get him out of this situation to the extreme. Because okay, if if you feel that winning all this money was an act of divine providence, then of course you're gonna do anything you can to get the money back, including potentially killing a man. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how you think this character is gonna continue. Now that at the end of the episode he doesn't have his church anymore, is this going to send him down a path of of destruction? Or is this going to act as some form of new spiritual enlightenment for him?
0: I would certainly hope spiritual enlightenment, but based off of the violence that, you know... I mean, that act of violence came in, what, within the last 15 minutes of the episode? And based on the fact that, as we saw in the pilot, Ann Dowd's religious activist group is nonviolent because they got the crap beaten out of him in the pilot. And the fact that this guy is now, you know, prone to violent behavior gives me... A bad feeling about how he's going to attempt to take his church back.
1: Well, it's clear that he's gone through some some transformation,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: it's not quite clear yet what that is because the 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 second half is filled with religious imagery. You know, he he goes to the uh, casino and he bets on red, which is the color of blood, which you know makes makes me think of the blood of Christ. Yeah. And he bets uh, three times. And in the Bible, Peter denies Christ the night, the night of his crucifixion three times. So it makes you wonder, okay, well, he's betting red, so that's that's positive. That's the, the example, that's Christ's blood. That's typically a, a positive thing in Christianity. But no, it's three times. That's kind of referencing the denial of, of God in Christ. So maybe that's negative. How should we interpret this? And mm-hmm. then the fact that he uh, gets knocked unconscious has the, this vision of fire in some theological circles, uh, Christ is crucified and then descends into hell, which is traditionally depicted with a lot of fire. And then he wakes up three days later, which is a parallel to the resurrection of Christ. True. So he 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 himself has. It's clear he's he's gone through some sort of resurrection. Some some sort of transformation has happened. Mm-hmm. We're just not quite sure yet what it is. And is it is this an actual? good divine sort of resurrection and transformation that has occurred or is there something a bit darker afoot that this is sort of symbolizing
0: yeah and at the same time i don't think he's transforming into a worse person per se i mean i feel like he's a more impulsive person, but at the same time, right after he, he possibly kills someone, he does stop his car when he sees another person get hit in the face with a rock and try and call 911. And that's how he ends up in the hospital. So I don't think it's not, That's another thing that I liked about this episode is that he's clearly going through a transformation, but it's not all he's going from good to bad in an hour of television. I feel like the show saying this is a character who's very conflicted on a lot of things, uses religion to clarify his confusion, even if it's not always in the most guided sense and is now prone to violent behavior in when in desperate situations and uses religion as a way to justify it possibly but i don't think that it's just and i will say i would have liked the episode a lot less if it was just a downward spiral into selfishness and erratic uh outbursts of violent behavior
1: i've got a question for you charlie just just hypothetically Mm-hmm. Do you think the show would have been structured better if this had been the second episode instead of the third episode? Because uh, thinking back, really the only information we got in the second episode that leads into this episode is the fact that Nora does the stuff with the death with the departure benefits from the government or whatever, and she and Matt know each other. We discover that in the second episode, and in this episode we find, oh, well, they know each other, and they're on good terms because they're related. Do you think they could have presented that information, introduced it in this episode, and had this be the second episode of the show?
0: That's interesting. I feel like if this was the second episode of the show, and the the second episode was the third episode, I feel like I would have liked the third episode a lot less. And one thing I am worried about is that if the show goes back to that ensemble structure— I feel like I'm going to be much more harsh on the show now that it's taken time to develop one character. Because, as you said before, we do want to learn more about this character. But it's gotten to a point where we're invested and compelled by his actions. And we're like, no, we really want to know. As opposed to, you know, the first two episodes where we're like, well, that's kind of weird. Hope they explain that soon, and we don't have to wait for more episodes. Here, it was like a genuine no. We want, at least for me, it was no. I genuinely want more of this character. I want to know where he's coming from. Not just oh, that doesn't make sense or that's strange. They better explain that soon. And I'm worried that I,
1: I guess I guess you're right that if this had been the second episode of the series then the third episode we both would have been like come on there's not enough more about the priest i want some follow-up here <laughs> yeah we're, we're, give me give me more stuff
0: about Matt. <laughs> i don't care about bagels god <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well well
1: okay charlie is it going to irritate you if next week we don't follow up with this character at all
0: i would say it would It wouldn't irritate me if we got to a completely different character in this type of approach where it just examines one different character and then we go back to this character later and he intersects with another individual character episode. It wouldn't annoy me then. It wouldn't annoy me more if we went back to the ensemble approach, which I think is coming up. I I think that they wouldn't just do the first two episodes like that and then just never go back to that type of approach because it's just weird to me. To think that they because w- in my, in my opinion, if they did the ensemble stuff, like if they just did all sorts of character episodes for the first season, and then the second episode, the second season was all of the characters that we spent time with in hour long chunks, getting to know them, interacting with one another, that would be great. But here, it seems like it's kind of, you know, blended up. I don't know if we're going to get another one of these episodes where it's just, you know, we'll go two more episodes with the ensemble and, you know, get little blips of everybody's lives and then you know once in a while we'll get an episode like this and as good as this episode was maybe this style or maybe this approach won't work for another character maybe the writing won't be as good or the character will be far less interesting or less or complex or bland who knows it's it it it's to- thrown me totally off balance andrew because i did not expect to like this episode nearly as much as i did and i i kind of loved it i it was just totally out of left field and it now it's I feel like it's almost going to spoil me for the rest of the season. But at least if it's you know not as good, at least we'll always have this episode to look back fondly on.
1: Well, you know, you you were just wondering about okay. Well, what if they do another episode like this with with other characters and it's not as good? That could happen, and the show could still still work. I mean, uh, you and I know you you and I have both seen uh, in treatment charlie which is a yes great hbo show one of my
0: favorite shows of all time
1: yeah it's it's absolutely wonderful and you only get to spend time with each character once every five episodes Mm -hmm. so i there, there were times of that show where i'd be like oh man I have to wait. I have to watch five more episodes to get back to Alex. I, should, you know, I have to... I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to sit through all of this Sophie stuff this week. Come on. I want to move on to an, to another character. So, I mean, that it's always possible that that could happen. Because, you know, you, you, you always... Regardless of the show, you, you always find yourself drawn to certain characters more than others. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that if the show were to take this approach of, oh, hey, we are actually going to do a lot of episodes that are only focused on one character, that it couldn't work.
0: It definitely could.
1: Let's say next week they did an episode all about uh, Wayne, and and we kind of didn't like it. It's It's entirely possible that for every person that didn't like the Wayne episode, there'd be a person that loved it. So, yeah. you know, I feel like each viewer is going to would is going to relate to different characters.
0: Do you find it to be weird though that they did that, that if they do go back and forth like this, like if the rest of the first season is like every two episodes we get a character driven episode, but until then you'll stick with all of them. So like, you know, we could get a great episode about Wayne, but we'd have to wait for two episodes of basically, you know, nothing ensembleness where, you know, one thing happens and all you get of Wayne is hug me and that's it.
1: Well well yeah and again I think it's because we we don't know quite what the structure of the show is and we still don't really know what the show is. Yeah. Yet we're 3 episodes in and I'm and I'm still like I don't know what this sh- show is. And and you know some episodes it seems like it's more oh what's going on? What's the mystery? What's what what's happening? And then you get an episode like this where it's suddenly forget about all that. Let's focus on the characters and and they're comparatively minor problems in the grand scheme of things but are problems that uh are still seem insurmountably huge to them the show needs to figure out what it's gonna be or i think find a better way to mix those elements together in this same episode because if it if it is still gonna touch on these bigger mysteries like oh hey what happened with the departure and oh is kevin going crazy and 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 what's what's really going on here it needs to do that while also developing character in in the way that this episode did and that's a tough balancing act
0: yeah because like even in treatment you know that did have a very similar not not to go back to in treatment but we would know who we would be spending time with. You know, it was very unlikely that if you were going to be watching an episode on Alex that you would get Sophie. So you're like, okay, you know, maybe I don't, maybe I'm not in the mood for an Alex episode, but in order to watch Sophie's episode and have it make logical sense, I have to watch Alex's episode to get to Sophie here. And you know what that structure is going to be of that show. Here, it's just we're going to get curveballs like this every once in a while which will be pleasantly surprised once in a while. But, you know, after this, I, I will be honest, I don't want to go back to the ensemble. <laughs> after, <laughs> after the way that this episode was done so well, I don't want to go back to that format. And now I'm just going to feel like if we do go back to that next week, I'm going to be automatically frustrated because I'm going to be like, Ugh, why didn't you? You did it so well last week. Why are you going back to this shit again? You know, like, why? Okay, well... I mean, it's it's not like this is the only show that has ever done this. There are plenty, no.
1: plenty of shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, Breaking Bad had an episode where Walt and Jesse just try and kill Fly for an hour. But that's also Breaking Bad, where every character on that show was fully realized. And that was also, what, season three? So, like, you know, it, it's a much different show structurally and thematically. So that's different, but...
1: Well, right. I, I mean, and that's a... That's a bottle episode i I wouldn't quite call this a bottle episode but even if you look at something like game of thrones where this past season it's a huge ensemble show and yet they still had an episode near the very end of the season that was just focused on one group of characters and one storyline for the entire episode yeah what's different about the leftovers is that they've done that at the beginning of the season in episode three so you're still not sure what, what is the show's normal mode of operation. Yeah. you know Because we don't, we, we don't know, like, okay, should we view this as a cool departure that we're going to get every once in a while? Or, no, is this going to become the new normal? That's why I feel like it's a little bit jarring right now is because we still don't know what the show normally is from week to week.
0: If it was the pilot, which had an ensemble, the pilot, we can both agree, was pretty solid. If it was just the pilot and then we went into this structure, I think that would have been interesting. But the fact that we got two episodes and then into this makes it even weirder for me. Because I'm pretty sure if... I mean, wouldn't you expect it to be kind of like the structure of uh, this episode where it was one character at a time if we got this in episode two as opposed to episode three? And then episode three... I know we already kind of talked about this, but it would be a lot worse because we've been would have been like, wait, what? What's going on? We would have been even more confused and even more outraged as to what we're watching here. And I would have loved an episode like this for Tom before the complaints we had for him of the last week. Oh, my God, he killed someone over Christine. How can he, you know, decide to do that? And, you know, we don't know anything about that character. And he's gone through. Some really radical decisions that would have been great if we had some time like an episode to spend with him before he did all that, you know, and it made me think about how you wanted the raid to be later on in the season. What if we had the raid happen, you know, in episode eight and we've gotten a bunch of these episodes already or, you know, even just the ensemble? I would love to spend an entire episode with Liv Tyler or Ann Dowd or Wayne or any of them. And if we had an episode to just focus on Chief Garvey, maybe his psychosis would be a little more interesting as opposed to he might be crazy but he might be not. But we're only going to spend 20 minutes with him so you won't have any idea what to guess and how to get invested in his, you know, psychological issues anyway. So, yeah, I agree. It's, it's very messy. You know, and there are also shows that do throw, like, they change the structure every week. Louis is a show that changes the structure every week. But Louis made that clear from the very beginning that it was just going to be a bunch of vignettes and short stories. Well, right, and so the fact
1: that Louis has no structure is kind of its structure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, like we we, we know the big picture. That's what I'm saying. We don't know yet the big picture of The Leftovers and what it's going for and and what it's going to be trying to do on a week-to-week basis. So as a result, I feel like neither of us are quite sure what to make of this show because we're kind of like well we like these <laughs> elements and we like it when it does this but will it work if it does this every week we don't know and these other elements are really lacking in comparison and it could it have been done differently and it's, it's just it's it still feels like the show is figuring itself out
0: it's kind of funny how like We ended up loving this episode, and that's great, but in exchange, it's almost made us even more confused (laughs) than we really were before, because I feel like if we were on episode three of Ensemble, we would be like, okay, we get where this is, you know, the rhythm of the show. We still don't know what's going on, but we're used to this sort of structure, and now it's like, oh my god, this is great, but... This leaves us even more clueless than we were before as to what are we doing here? What What is the overall goal that we're trying to get to? Because character-wise, we got that from Christopher Eccleston's Reverend, but as a show, as a format as an overall season of television, it's left us even more kind of frustrated in its own way. But hey, I mean, I'll I'll take it. I'll take it at this point. I guess, guess, you know, that sense of befuddlement is worth getting at least one really great episode of television. Even if this is the only one, I guess I'll take it at this point.
1: I I love this episode so much, Charlie. I would say it fully makes up for how awful (laughs) I thought last week's episode was. like That's how night and day they were. But we we need to move on. We need to wrap up this episode. Uh, We did get some listener feedback. Uh, We got a voicemail from our friend Tony who uh, uh, also listened to our True Detective podcast uh, back in the winter, Detect This, and she left us a few voicemails for that. But she is listening to the Tupperware party and she had a a, a message that she left for us. So let's hear what Tony had to say. Hi,
2: this is Tony from Colorado. I used to listen to you guys on Detect This, and I called a couple times, sent a couple emails, and I decided to watch this show, The Leftovers, and see if I liked it. I don't so far. I think it's very boring. But I just listened to your podcast, and the penguin um, is in the episode. Um, he, the penguin is a like a punching toy in the doctor's office, the psychologist's office, and the cop looks at it and talks about it, and they say it's for kids to act out aggression. So there is a penguin in the episode, so I just wanted to let you know. At the beginning of this episode with the penguins, did the FBI people say that Wayne has a criminal record and he's a pedophile? Because I thought that's what they said, that he's a pedophile, before the disappearance of people. And now he has all these young girls in this compound and they're gonna take action against him. But they obviously, they they went in killing everybody, which was ridiculous. So something's going on there that's very weird. Anyway, I just wanted to ask that question. Thank you, bye.
1: All right, congratulations, Tony. You're smart, you have a great memory. I had totally forgotten about the uh inflatable penguin in the therapist's office and then after we recorded that episode I remembered and I and I was like, "Oh yeah." Yeah. That, that's <laughs> where the penguin comes from. Oh. Yeah. And oh, and uh, and speaking of titles, this week's episode, Two Boats and a Helicopter, Charlie, you you looked it up and it's a reference to an old joke which I've actually heard before uh about a reverend uh, it's the old joke about the reverend who's uh, in a in a flood. There's uh, The whole city's being flooded due to this hurricane, this natural disaster. So he asks God for help. God sends a boat.
0: Two boats and a helicopter, yep.
1: Yeah, he says, you guys go on without me, that God will save me. And basically the punchline is that he drowns, gets to heaven, and says, hey, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, come on, what are you doing? Uh, really? I, I, I gave you three <laughs> opportunities. Come on. And, when, and and how do you think that relates to this episode? I know this is a slight tangent from, from Tony's voicemail, but how do you think that title relates to this episode, Charlie? Is it trying to imply that Matt is so, so focused on his own idea of having God rescue him or provide a miracle to help him save the church that he misses some of the opportunities right in front of him or, or he misses the big picture? Somehow he, he's letting his his obsessive faith and his obsession with coming up with a, a, a reason for all the suffering set him down this wrong path.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely um, on point here. It's also interesting to me, though, because his downfall is ultimately being a good person. Because if he just beat the crap out of that guy, possibly killed him and kept driving and didn't stop for the guy getting hit in the face with the rock, he would have been fine. So, yeah, at the end where he's just kind of like where the, um, you know, the guy who he needs to give the money to says, dude, it's been three days. Like, I gave you all this time. It kind of feels like the punchline of God saying, what more do you want? I gave you two boats and a helicopter. And yet at the same time, the fact that that didn't stem from a selfish act, this fact that that stemmed from an act of compassion makes it kind of complex and twisted in its own ways. And yet at the same time, it is God basically saying, dude, you know, you won one hundred and sixty thousand dollars and I was there for you and you just had to stop. Like, you know, what what, what were you thinking? I gave you such a huge opportunity. And but but it's interesting to me that it is that his downfall is driven by sympathy. It's driven by Wanting to help a human being and not just, you know, be a cutthroat and say, I got to get this money in right away because if I don't, then my church will be gone. So what do you think about it?
1: Well, not only that, Charlie, but the incredible irony of the fact that the person he helps belongs to the cult that is ultimate or yeah. the activist group that's ultimately going to take his church. Mm-hmm. And just that, that irony, I thought, was incredibly delicious.
0: Yeah, yeah. And does Ann Dow know that? Does she know that the reason that he's in a coma and she's now going to get this church? Well, she probably doesn't know that, you know, she probably thinks it's a done deal. Like, oh, well, I have the money. There's no way he can get it in time. So I'm pretty much good. But does she know that the reason he's in a coma is because he stopped to go help one of her fellow members?
1: Yeah, it's just... So so many things to think about in this episode. Getting back to Tony's voicemail, yes, He brought up that question about Wayne and whether or not they said in the last week's episode if he's a pedophile. I don't remember them s- saying that. I remember them saying that he had assaulted, I uh, perhaps sexually assaulted, like eight to ten girls.
0: I I got the I, I can't remember, though, if they were children or if they were just young women. I don't remember either, and I wish I did. I'm definitely going to have to go back and try and find that and either look it up on an article and then go back on HBO Go and just try and find it because this is clearly a big question that, you know, is important, especially considering that, you know, he gives magical hugs and embraces them, you know, people physically, adding another layer of irony to him being this, you know, prophet that heals pain if he caused pain that makes that that definitely merits uh some doubt as to how effective he is and how spiritual he is as for the penguin thing i completely missed that too um and it makes so much sense now because it seems like in that uh in the last episode it seems like aggression kind of beat out any sense of clarity or it it, it was just aggression last last week's episode was all aggression and it was all impulsive uh negative behavior for the most part and selfishness and not not a lot of good stuff happened it was all just kind of a lot of negative feelings from one character apart from Liv tyler chopping down the tree she as you said last week she's the only character with an arc who you know gets over her aggression and uses her aggression to her benefit which can be related to using the aggression of the inflatable penguin to let out, you know, some anger and see more clearly, as Liv Tyler does with the tree by chopping it down and doing what and doing what the cult asks of her to do. But yeah, what do you think of it?
1: Well, right. And, and last week's episode was called Penguin One Us Zero, and I was thinking, okay, well, what did the penguin beat us at? And the penguin beats us at uh, survival. Basically, you, you you punch the penguin, it, it pops back up. Yeah. And last week people kept getting punched and and they (laughs) literally. Yeah. And to a certain extent, the the whole show is about, well, what do you do in the face of suffering? What do you do when life beats you down? Do you give up or do you pop back up and do you do you live to fight another day?
0: Totally agree.
1: So, yeah, thanks for clarifying that for us, uh, Tony.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tony. Once
1: I was reminded of the penguin in the uh, therapist's office, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that does make a lot more sense now penguin one a zero yeah okay.
0: i didn't look up the title until after i saw the episode so i wasn't looking for a penguin and that was such a minor moment that it just completely faded in my memory until you spotted it out so yeah thanks a lot
1: now i'm wondering what other weird titles we're gonna get this season
0: yeah because these are the most <laughs> the most bizarre out of left field titles of any show i can think of
1: <laughs> here's here's my here here's my uh, brilliant idea I think there should be an episode called uh, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? And uh, the answer, of course, is to get to the other side, which is makes you wonder, the other side of what?
0: Hmm, <laughs> the
1: people were taken. They departed. The, did they go to the other side? Hmm. What is the other side? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like Damon Lindelof could potentially just title an episode after some random joke or some random story or some completely random
0: reference and it would... it would make perfect sense for this show. <laughs> we'll get episodes titled "Interrupting Cow," and yeah. there you go. Yeah, there you go. Or knock knock. <laughs> or yeah, just knock knock. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was actually a Breaking Bad episode, wasn't it? <laughs> maybe I'm out. Maybe I'm out there. I'm almost. Or no, no. Yeah, I'm just thinking of You're thinking the one who knocks. R- yeah. Well, you know
1: he. Yeah, he was the one who knock knocks. <laughs>
0: Oh god. <laughs> we get we get one that's like why don't seagulls fly over the bay? <laughs> Cuz they'd be bagels. <laughs> oh god. I do not like myself.
1: <laughs> oh man. What's black and white and red all over? The reverend's flyers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dead cult members. Oh, God.
1: I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Tupperware Party. Uh, Write in and let us know what you thought of this week's episode. You can email us at leftovers at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also leave us a voicemail through the website or call us at 336-793-2509. Be sure to subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like the Tupperware Party, please write us a review. That really helps us out a lot in terms of getting the word out about the show. And if you really like the show and you'd like to financially support us, you can donate by going to filmgeekradio.com and clicking the Donate button. That money really helps us out and goes towards helping us pay for hosting and bandwidth and covering all of the other costs that come with producing the show. You can also use our affiliates page to visit some of our partners, including Amazon. Anything you purchase from our affiliates, if you use our site to get there, we will get a small percentage of whatever you spend. So you can go ahead and buy something for yourself and help us out at the same time. And as always, be sure to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix. Uh, Charlie, you just came on our most recent episode to talk about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and we had a good conversation.
0: Yes, we did. It was also the least... I mean, we still debated, but uh, it's by far the most tame episode I've ever been on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We weren't at each other's throats like we have been uh, some of the other times. So yeah, it was was a good
0: conversation. (laughs) No blood was shed.
1: (laughs) No blood was shed. Yeah. (laughs) Charlie, where can people
0: find you online? Um, you can find the work that I've written for Edge Media on edgeonthenet.com, as well as the work that I've written for Movie Mezzanine on moviemezzanine.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Letterbox at ctnash91. That's c-t-n-a-s-h-91.
1: You can find my film criticism at moviemezzanine.com, and you can also find me co-hosting a few other podcasts on Film Geek Radio. And uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at writerandrew, and I hope you will do so so we can keep talking about the leftovers. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode, and we will see you next week at the Tupperware Party.
0: This has been a Film Geek Radio production.
2: Film Geek Radio! Yeah!